Welcome to the Irish Legislation Podcast with me, Barry Ward, a podcast looking at legislation as it passes through Iraqtas Air in our national parliament. Welcome to the Irish Legislation Podcast, and today I'm talking about the Sale of Tickets, Cultural, Entertainment, Recreational and Sporting Events Act 2021 with former Fine Gael TD Noel Rock and barrister and lecturer in the Sutherland School of Law in UCD, James McDermott. Um, this is obviously an act, but it started as a private member's bill sponsored by then TD Noel Rock, and Noel joins us uh, to tell us about why he started this and, and how it went from there. So Noel, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about why you brought forward this private member's legislation. So the genesis of the bill, in effect, was one around consumer protection. Um, I would have recognised there was a, a gap between the perception of what the law was where sports fans and music fans were under the belief or the misunderstanding that ticket touting was already illegal, whereas it wasn't, while obviously it was against the terms and conditions um, that were attached to most tickets, uh, most venues. Um, it wasn't actually against the law. So accordingly, I would have seen there being a, a prospective opportunity there in enhancing consumer protection legislation uh, with hopefully a net positive outcome for all sports and music fans. However, it was actually um, built off the back of legislation uh, that predated my own um, back in uh, the 1990s, I think 1995, set forward by uh, Dennis Nocton um, and Alan Chatter. Um, so it actually it does go back quite some time and it's kind of been resurrected various times. Um, I would have put my bill before the doll in 2017. Um, and I suppose it was a, an eye-opening process with regards to the passage of legislation, which obviously listeners to your podcast, Barry, will be uh, intimately familiar with at this stage. Um, but how long legislation can take to get passed, um, not only given the, the various stages of the Oireachtas it has to pass, but also in terms of notification to Europe and then obviously dealing with external stakeholders as well um, with consultation processes. It's actually it was quite a long process. Mm-hmm. And how obviously it, it ultimately became law under Leo Varadkar, I think, who is the minister who brought it for, for, through to its conclusion. Uh, how does the final product differ from what you originally drafted? So, yeah, the, the bill obviously would have fallen in the 32nd doll when the 32nd doll was dissolved and then was resurrected, if you like, by uh, by Minister Tanishtar Varadkar uh, in the 33rd doll. Um, it is somewhat different from the original product that would have been crafted between um, Minister Donnelly and myself insofar as it would have specific designations around what a designated venue is and what a designated event is. And these are opt-in clauses, if you like. So in order for your event to be designated or in order for your venue to be designated, you, you, you need to file some paperwork ultimately with the department in order to be included under the scope and provisions of the bill. That wouldn't have necessarily been how it was originally envisaged. It would have been envisaged as a, as a catch-all type of legislation where all events over a certain size, I think maybe the size was 100, um, would have been included in it. However... Um, the, the civil servants and the, the, the legal advisors that we had at that time um, in the department, not my own, would have said that for reasons of enforcement and also for reasons of applicability around the rights of property of the venue owners, that they would have felt that the more legally sound way of going about it is the way that has emerged now. 
Um, right. That had some teething problems in terms of clickability itself, whereby uh, the Aviva Stadium wasn't initially opted in, for example. Um, but that, that's the trade-off, I suppose. Um, the trade-off was going with a more legally robust path, but allowing for that opt-in structure. Yeah. Now, the, the legislation you referred to um, from the 90s was the Prohibition of Ticket Tights Bill 1998, which was sponsored by Alan Shatter. But we've seen this before, where a legislation, an idea maybe for a bill in one dole survives into a subsequent dole. And so it happened with this one. How do you feel about, about the bill now, having obviously lost control of it, if I can put it in those terms, now that it's law? Are you happy with the way it operates? Yeah, broadly speaking, I am. Um, something is always better than nothing. Uh, yeah. I don't think any law with regard to this will ever be perfect um, insofar as it's the same for, you know, um, drink driving laws, speed limits on our roads, prohibition of drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there will always be people who will work uh, to work around the law. Um, so it's never been the statement of intent of this legislation that it would 100%, you know, uh, eliminate ticket outing or 100% fix the problem. But it certainly has, I believe, from looking at it and looking at the outcomes of it, uh, when you look at matches and events going on sale, it has certainly brought things along a long way, I think. Um, yeah. If you look back at that legislation in 1998, there was probably less of an urgent need for it then, but still a need nevertheless, but less mm-hmm. of an urgent need compared to 2016, 2017, where you know, the internet had allowed and enabled people to both bulk buy at scale from the primary source and also yeah. bulk sell at scale. And so accordingly, you saw the market being cornered um, and, and that was where the difficulties were, were beginning to bubble up to a certain extent. Yeah, I think one of the big differences as well, and I might bring you in on this, James, is obviously in 1998, we didn't have the same prevalence of online ticket sales that we have now. But James, uh, you're, you're an avid event goer, uh, so you're looking at how this bill is going to operate. What do you think about its workability? Well, I think it's ironic, as Noel has outlined, this issue has been a live one literally for decades now. And it was only when all live events stopped for about 18 months that the government finally got around to legislating on the issue, despite the excellent work done by Deputy Rock when he was in the door on the issue and his predecessors. Having said that, better late than never. But there are a couple of issues that will still arise The first one is that the legislation only covers the resale of tickets. So it covers the secondary market. But those of us who are going to the Ireland versus the New Zealand game on Saturday, the face value price of the ticket is an eye-watering 125 euros. So I think one of the things that the government has really got to consider carefully is if you're subsidizing sporting organizations with taxpayers' money, during the coronavirus pandemic, that's perfectly understandable. But in response, I think there's an obligation on sporting bodies to ensure that tickets for matches are affordable to the ordinary member of the general public. And as I say, for the all black tickets, the face value of tickets goes up to 125 euros. The second difficulty is going to be if you go to the game on Saturday afternoon, you will see in every hotel hundreds of people being wined and dined before the match. And in effect, they have bought what you might call a package deal, whereby you get a ticket, you get your lunch, you get a couple of pints, you get a match program, maybe a team scarf. But those packages could cost cost four or 500 euros. So it's hard to identify in a scenario like that what exact price is being paid for the ticket. And 
This is an issue that, of all people, Roy Keane raised when he pejoratively referred to the prawn sandwich brigade. And it seems to me that it's no good saying that we're going to control the price of tickets on the secondary market, where tickets are suddenly coming available for packages to package operators, and we don't really know what price you're paying for the ticket. And if you were to bring a criminal prosecution, as you know, Barry, as a practicing criminal lawyer, it's going to be very difficult to successfully bring a prosecution for ticket touting when you can't establish what precisely the price that's being paid for the ticket actually is. And the third issue that will arise, I think, as well, is that the legislation only deals with venues over a thousand. Now, obviously, for big matches, that won't be a problem. But when you're dealing with theatres, for example, maybe there's a Hollywood star starving in the Gate Theatre or the Abbey Theatre, tickets will be gold dust and the venue there will be too small to come within the capacity threshold of the legislation. So overall, I welcome the legislation, better late than never, but I think that there are certain issues that still have to be teased out. Well, James, can I tease out some of those issues with you? The first one being the price. Um, In Section 2 of the bill, it defines the original sale price as the price for which a ticket or ticket package was sold by a primary ticket seller and includes any additional charge or fee applying to the sale of the ticket or ticket package or the price for which an equivalent ticket or ticket package was on sale by a primary ticket seller where a secondary ticket seller obtained the ticket or ticket package other than through payment of the price. So does that not allow us to establish with some clarity what the, I mean, I understand the point you're making generally about the inflation of the costs of going to events. But does that not allow us for the purposes of prosecution to establish exactly what the price was? Well, it might. But remember, you've got to prove your case beyond beyond any reasonable doubt. And suppose you offer to sell me a package with a match ticket and a nice lunch and a match program and a scarf for, say, 500 euros. Will I get a breakdown of how much of that 500 euros I'm paying for the ticket as opposed to the lunch? I mean, could you not defend the action by saying, well, actually, you are only paying face value for the tickets. We charge 200 euros for the nice lunch (laughs) or 200 euros or whatever. So, I mean, with a criminal prosecution, as you know yourself, Barry, there's very little wriggle room for the prosecutor. All the defence have to establish is some kind of reasonable doubt. And unless it's crystal clear the precise amount you're paying for the tickets, then there may well be an issue there. And as I say, certainly in the past, it's been very unclear to me when these packages have been sold, the precise amount that's been paid for the ticket, as opposed to the nice lunch or the couple of pints or the scarf or the jersey or whatever. In terms of the second issue, like the the size of the venues, and I think I remember during the debates on this, there was a discussion on this point. And one of the issues that was raised by those bringing forward the bill was just the workability of this. So, for example, if you have an event with a very small number of people, the likelihood of there being for example, ticket touting on the scale that we see associated with international matches or or large concerts is, is small. And they felt that if if you had every size of event covered by the legislation, it wouldn't be workable from an enforceability point of view. So they, I mean, a thousand is probably an arbitrary figure, but you can understand why the thousand figure was was picked, can you? Well, I can and I can't because quite often now you have real A-list stars deliberately playing smaller venues. I mean, Bruce Springsteen recently did a residency on Broadway in a relatively small theatre for an artist who can sell out the largest stadiums in the world. So sometimes A-list performers and groups 
we'll deliberately decide at this particular point in our career, we want to play slightly smaller venues. And then obviously tickets become gold dust. The same thing happened in London when the Harry Potter story was made into a play. Hamilton, the musical, same thing. These are relatively small venues and the tickets are like gold dust. And all of a sudden they're being resold in those two examples, not just for hundreds of euros, but sometimes for thousands of euros. So I think I agree with what uh, Noel Rook said, that in his original legislation, he was catching, as I understand it, a, a lot wider venues. And I'm not entirely sure why we've put this arbitrary limit, particularly in circumstances where most theatres in Ireland, to the best of my knowledge, have a capacity of less than a thousand. Obviously, stadiums and sports stadiums are different, but things like the Abbey Theatre, the Gaiety Theatre, I'm not entirely sure that their capacity is over a thousand. So they yeah. are possibly entirely exempt from this legislation. Yeah. I mean, you could certainly foresee a live episode of the Irish Legislation podcast, you know, with an, in, an intimate venue and, and massive ticket touting for the tickets. Noel, uh, would you be concerned concerned about that kind of uh, abuse of the legislation or kind of the loophole, as, as people might say? Yeah, naturally I would. I mean, on the first instance of the, the package deals, if you like, obviously in itself, a friction is created there insofar as suddenly touts have to go from an online sales platform to quite an elaborate production where they have to put together a, a meal or an event of some sort, presumably, in order to get around it. But nevertheless, obviously, it is still a, a loophole that does exist and is somewhat already in existence, if you like, particularly in the rugby match world, whereby package deals uh, are often put together for a lunch in advance of a match, as, as outlined there. So yes, that would be definitely a concern. And the secondary concern around venue size, I, I, I would agree. I do think 1,000 was higher than I would have liked it to have been set at. Um, I think there will be changes in the future there. And then the third thing that was sort of alluded to earlier on is the issue of the actual primary ticket price itself. Um, this new phenomenon within the industry called dynamic pricing, um, which in essence would mean that the, the, the price of the remaining tickets would go up in accordance with the speed at which they had been sold uh, previously. Um, I think that's um, definitely an emerging problem whereby um, the primary ticket seller is attempting to, to, to cash in, if you like, on the remaining value of the remaining tickets, sort of becoming a secondary platform in all but name, in a way. Um, so I think that's something that will need to be looked at and will be actually quite tricky to, to, to regulate or legislate for. And can I ask you, Noel, about the, I suppose, the exemption for charities under the Act? I think it was also in your bill and in the original 1998 yeah. one as well. You're obviously comfortable with that. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's a well-worn path for charitable fundraising uh, where you have an auction type scenario. And if there's going to be two or four tickets to a sought after event and it's being raised for a charity that's screened by the charities regulator and, that's, uh, you know, established and authorized to, to, to raise funds generally, then, yeah, I think that's a, a reasonable exception in the same way as we allow people to donate money to charity uh, it, with no expectation of exchange of utility or anything like that. I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable to allow for uh, tickets to be, in effect, auctioned um, via that mechanism. James, would you have any difficulty with that or are you happy with the exemption for charities? No, no, I don't. In fact, when I've written on this issue in the past, I, I've always suggested that there be such an exemption because the reality of life for a small GAA club or a small rugby club is that they tend to always be short of cash. 
And in circumstances where they're given a number of tickets for a high-profile match and they decide they'd like to raffle the tickets to raise funds for the club, the amateur club, then I've no issue with that. As Noel says, assuming it's a genuine charitable purpose, then I, I, then I have no particular issue with that at all. In fact, when I've written on this, as I say, I've always suggested that there specifically be such a provision. Um, and coming back to the, the point that you make about the venue capacity, um, what what figure would you pitch it at, if not a thousand, which I think is is named in Section Seven of the Act? What level would you pitch it at? Would you have this cover all events? Possibly yes, because the reality is that really what you're dealing with, the, the, the thing you're trying to stamp out is reselling tickets above face value. And to me, it doesn't seem to matter whether that's happening in a venue with a capacity of 200 or a venue with a capacity of 80,000. The principle is the same one. But I'm just saying in Ireland, if you're aiming at in particular theatres, there are very few theatres with a capacity of more than 1,000. So that entire sector to a large extent, avoids this legislation, as do other well-known venues, because I'm not entirely sure of the venue of, say, Vicar Street. But again, I'm not sure it's much above a 1,000. So you've got really substantial venues where a lot of the events, particularly now, a lot of them tend to be all seated. There's less standing at gigs. Uh, The actual capacity is going to be under a 1,000. So to the extent that there was a need to have a numerical lower limit, I would certainly have had one much lower than a 1,000, say 200. Right. Well, I mean, in Section 7, subsection 1A is 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 what includes the condition of a thousand people. But what that subsection does actually is puts the the duty or the onus on the organizer or, or what's called the the um, the venue operator in the act, the organizer or the venue owner to apply to the minister to make this uh, an event that is subject to the provisions of, of the act. And the two conditions are A, that it holds a thousand people or more, and B, that, there, that that person is of reasonable opinion that the venue will hold events which may give rise to the sale of tickets or ticket packages by a secondary ticket seller for a price exceeding the original sale price. So do you think that we should be it's okay to be leaving the the duty on the venue operator to do this, or is it something that the government should be having a a more direct hand in, James? Well, to be honest, I would have preferred if the government just decided to to stamp out ticket touting, because once the venue operator has sold the ticket once, they've sold all the tickets at face value, then they they financially are are in as good a position as they're likely to end up. So the people who are missing out actually aren't the venue operators. If they've sold all of the tickets at face value, then there's no particular financial imperative for them to designate the event. The people who are losing out are the fans who can't get tickets. That They've been on Ticketmaster for an hour, wasting their time, refreshing the page, that they can't get tickets. And then when they log off, immediately they go to the website of a secondary seller and there are hundreds of tickets available at three or 400 euros. So mm. the victim really is the ordinary member of the general public. And yeah. I think the Oireachtas should have intervened perhaps more directly to protect them uh, rather than relying on the venue owner who's already sold out the gig from, mm. or is, is anticipating it's going to sell out from uh, doing it. Noel, do you think that James is right that maybe we should, we should have been more prescriptive and, and maybe not left it up to the organisers or the owners? It would remain my my view that it would have been better for the consumer if all uh, venues and all events over a certain size were simply included in it on an 
not even an opt-out basis rather, but that yeah. they wouldn't be required to opt-in. Um, yeah. I think that would always have been my intention. And even after meeting with the civil servants and legal advisors on the issue with Stephen Donnelly in 2019, where we kind of thrashed it out in some detail, um, I, I would have walked away knowing that their view was very set and firm, but I would have walked away thinking that the alternative approach and um, the original approach set out in legislation was probably a more effective one. And there is a provision in that section as well, in subsection three, for there to actually be a fee involved for the organiser to make that application to the minister. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's another... Uh, no, well, it's 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 allowed. It allows the minister to set a fee, and I don't know whether that has been done or not. I presume not. But can I ask you a little bit, just from the process point of view? You said in, in advance of kind of drafting this legislation or putting it out there that you met with civil servants. Can you tell us a little bit about how that process works from a backbencher's point of view? You have an idea to put together this legislation. What's your first step once you have written the bill and made it look the way you want it to look? So the first step was lodging the bill with, with the houses, naturally enough. So the first stage, if you like, which is a relatively pro forma um, process to go through where you, where you submit it to the bills office and then it finds time in the doll in the following two weeks. Um, from there then, uh, depending on how serious the government are about taking it forward, um, you may or may not be assigned time for second stage. In my case, um, there was some interest in the bill from media already at that stage. So accordingly, the department were keen to engage on it and to understand a little bit more about the background and the genesis and what I intended to achieve with the bill. And um, so that was arranged with the then minister at the time, um, Minister Humphreys. And um, the process that they had in mind was they felt they would have needed to engage with external stakeholders, i.e. the venue owners, Ticketmaster, uh, the various supporting bodies in particular, um, and try and tease out you know, are there any unintended consequences in this bill as it stands? Yeah. Um, what would the consequences be? Are these bodies in favour of it, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, what would you have done if they'd come back and said they were not in favour of it? Well, I mean, uh, everybody has their their motivations and their, their different factors for why they come to their conclusions. I mean, anybody that I had encountered, and there were people, Barry, who were against this legislation um, for reasons of consumer choice perhaps uh, freedom of the market to allow it to do what it wants to do um, on inability to enforce it would be another one and there were definitely there were people against it all right um, okay. but at the end of the day I, I would be a subscriber to the principle that if the bill does more good than harm then it's ultimately a, a net good thing um, so there, there, there definitely were people against it but we, we pushed forward with the legislation nevertheless um, and while what has passed is not what was originally designed, I still think it is it's better than the absence of legislation. James, uh, you've written extensively on, on this subject area, particularly from the point of view of sales of tickets to various events. Um, can you conceive of a person who genuinely objects to this legislation other than out of self-interest? Oh, I think so. I mean, the reality is we don't have price controls for anything else. You know, if I buy a nice jacket in the shop and you, you like the jacket and I paid 100 euros, there's nothing to stop me saying, well, give me 300 euros and the jacket is yours. So with pretty much everything you buy in your day-to-day -day life, be it a jacket or a car or a house or whatever, there's nothing to stop you the next day selling that item to a willing purchaser for a much higher price. So I can understand why somebody in the free market 
might have a, a pure objection to this because they would say supply and demand, and that would resolve all issues. I don't agree with that, particularly where you're dealing with sporting teams who are representing the country, because it seems to me that the ordinary citizen, it's their team. They're the people being represented, and they need to be given a reasonable opportunity to purchase a ticket at an affordable price to watch the team. There's also a secondary issue, of course, which we might come back to in a future episode of the podcast, which is the listing of sporting events to ensure that ordinary citizens, if they can't get a ticket, can at least watch the game live on terrestrial television rather than having to pay a satellite subscription. But that's a slightly different issue that we might come back to in a future podcast. But as I say, particularly with sporting and national teams, there's a real issue. And sport is different from music, although it's often bundled in together. Because if there's a popular artist, be it Westlife or the Eagles, who are still knocking around, it appears, if they're announcing gigs in Dublin and they sell out, they can always add a second night or a third night or a fortnight. But you can't do that with Ireland v Portugal on Thursday night. You can't say to the Portuguese FA, Cristiano Ronaldo is a big hit at the Dublin box office. Will you play us again on Friday? You can't say to the All Blacks, we sold out all the tickets for Saturday's game. Will you give us another game on Sunday? So oh, they won't want to come back when we beat them on Saturday anyway. So, Well, well no doubt. They'll be afraid to come back. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. But you can see how that to some extent, although it's often bundled in together, music and sport, they're very different things. And particularly when it's your national team, you're representing the entire country. And so every citizen ought to have a reasonable chance to buy a ticket at an affordable price. And if they can't do that, at least be able to watch the match free of charge on terrestrial television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I think, and so say all of us, I did, there's an awful lot of complexity to this, but uh, no, congratulations on bringing it forward, because I know it's something you spent a lot of time on um, when you were in the Oireachtas, and, and it's great to see that coming through as a fruit um, of your labour recently. Um, can I leave it there? Thank you very much, both for joining us. Uh, Noel Rock, former TD for Dublin Northwest, and James McDermott, barrister and law lecturer at the Southern School of Law in UCD. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Barry. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Irish Legislation Podcast with me, Barry Ward. You can get me on Twitter at Barry M. Ward. Don't forget to subscribe and you won't miss any of the episodes as they come up on a weekly basis while the Oireachtas is sitting.